Okay? I'm glad you're here. We'll jump in. Uh, I had a kind of, I don't know why I'm sharing this exactly, but just uh, just to tell you something that, that made me laugh. Uh, I, I was working in this sort of very funky uh, neighborhood of Los Angeles um, called Silver Lake um, this week and just doing some writing with someone there and it's like a whole, you know, it's a whole scene, uh, like hipsters and very... Uh, eccentric people walking back and forth all day. So a lot of good people watching. And there's, there's, we were next to this place that I guess, I, I don't know the exact name brand, but it's a kind of like a Mexican soda or something like this. And so this uh, delivery van came in to wheel in the, to wheel in the, the sodas. And, and he was accompanied by a, uh, a masked uh, Mexican wrestler. Um, which, if you haven't seen that look, it's a very unique look. They, they have a leather mask over their face that covers everything except their eyes and their mouth that are usually multicolored. The, the, this was orange and, and green. And he had a cape and his, you know, big uh, naked exposed barrel-chested belly with, you know, a big curved tattoo on the belly and tight shorts and boots. And so he really, he was the real deal. You know, this was like a real masked Mexican wrestler. And uh, I wanted to get my picture taken with him. So I guess that's the idea because, you know, a guy who looks like that, you know, when they go from stop to stop, it attracts attention. And it's, I guess, on a business level, a great idea, you know. So anyway, I, I, he was a very friendly guy. And, and I go to get my picture. And a lot of people are getting their picture taken with him, by the way. So whatever they had in mind, it's working, you know. So I go and I, I, I say, can I get my picture with you? And he goes, yeah. So I, you know, pose for a picture. And then... Uh, he says, uh, and then I say to him, um, now can you put me in a, uh, a wrestling hold, you know? And, and he says, okay. And I said, but don't hurt me. And then he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, you know, if I hadn't said, but don't hurt me, <laughs> he was not assuming that I did not want to be hurt, you know? So it's like, wow, okay. It's a good thing I said that, you know? Um, anyway, that's, that's the end of that story. Um, so, so I want to, uh, I want to talk about, um, a, a number of things and approach a, a subject that, that we've been kind of talking about on and off for a while now. Um, but, uh, but it's, it has to do with, with objective truth and with the, with the true sort of like nature of the universe. And what I mean by that, and it's, it's we'll get into it more, but, but what we're going to add that's uh, kind of new th- this time is I want to just show you um, uh, some things that have been written uh, in, in math circles. Um, meaning to say... Uh, you know, a, a, a little while ago, a few weeks ago, I gave a talk called uh, Fibonacci Sequences in God, which is, which was, a, and, and, a, and a friend gave me this book called The Golden Ratio uh, by Mario Livio. And it's, a, it's kind of a history of math on the golden ratio, and it draws heavily on, on Fibonacci numbers and things like that. And so it's, it's very mathematical and a very interesting book. And so they have a chapter called uh, Mathematics and God. And so I started looking into that, and I found that a lot of the statements there very much support and correlate with with some of the ideas that we've been discussing here. So I want to just um, revisit some of these ideas from a mathematical perspective. And it's not going to be, I'm not going to be throwing numbers at you, or we're not going to be doing math together. Just some ideas, you know, that that you'll see support this idea, approaching the the ideas of, of Torah, basically, but approaching it from a different angle, that's all. Um, and so, and so maybe we should just, uh, proceed in, in, in that direction right now. So, so one of the, one of the things that is, has been for me personally, a breakthrough idea. Um, and I don't know that this is necessarily a controversial idea or anything like that. And to the extent that it strikes people as perhaps a new idea, I think that that might come more from lack of thinking things through than sort of like disagreeing with it, okay? So that's the idea 
that we exist amidst a very definite structure, a very, a very concrete structure, if you will. And that, that this notion of things being random and everything sort of being in flux and there being no real kind of like um, stability or mooring to the universe. Um, you know, stars are just exploding and colliding into each other and people make no sense with each other and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and everything like that. That's, um, that's many people's world view. But if you take a few steps back and try to be very sort of like rigorous and analytical about the universe that we live in, you realize that, well, it's not actually anything really even close to that. Um, all that stuff does exist, but, but there's an overriding structure which actually signals tremendous order. And, and so let me just lay out the, the argument for an ordered universe, and then we'll get into some of the mathematics of it in a, in a moment, okay? So, so again, we... And, and by the way, what I'm about to do, I've, I've shared with you before, but I just want to preface it before I go through I'll go through it quickly this time. Um, but let me just preface what I'm about to say to you, that this is a good thing for you to say to yourselves, all right? Remember what I'm about to say, okay? Because when things, when you have a moment of crisis, when you have a moment of you know, is there a God? Does anything make sense? You know, is any of this true or anything like that? I find just personally that it helps to do what I'm about to tell you as an exercise. And it, it for me anyway, it just instills faith, okay? So, so what, what is this thing? To, to actually go through kind of like the universe as we understand it from the top to the bottom and to just look at how exactingly precise and ordered it is. So, you begin with the cosmos. Cosmos are billions and billions, hundreds of billions of heavenly bodies that all follow this amazingly exact orbit. And it's true. There are things that crash into each other. But, you know, in, in my mind, you know, one of my favorite games to play as a kid and, and, and if you've ever seen them do this on a grand scale, it's fantastic. When you, um, the whole domino effect, have you ever seen when people set up dominoes in like, you know, in these like sort of like intricate patterns and then like they go up ramps and they fall down and it's like, I'm sure if you put, um, you know, domino effect on YouTube, you could probably see some amazing examples of this. So, but, but just as a kid, there's something very interesting that if you tip over one thing, that that causes this chain reaction, right? So I would think to myself, okay, so it's true. Things crash into other things in the heavens. But where's the domino effect? Why doesn't it all fall apart? Why doesn't it all fall apart? Why don't all the cosmos crash into each other? I mean, that, that's what should happen, but it doesn't happen. There are isolated events here and there you know, in terms of the overall order of things. But the, the, the rule is, um, and I'm talking about like God is almost showing off. He even throws in black holes, which are like sucking planets and collapsed stars into them, and yet still the order is maintained, even with these black holes and things like that, which makes actually the existence of order, as opposed to disorder, the existence of order all the more astonishing and amazing that it doesn't all collapse. And, and, and these things can be measured, these orbits of the planets and, and, and everything like that, rigorously exact. You can know exactly where a planet is going to be a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now and be exactly, exactly right. That's amazing. That's amazing. So again, tremendous precision. Then you go down to air. Air is an exact recipe for that which we can breathe and that which sustains us. And if you say, okay, well, let's just flip the amount, okay, so it's this amount oxygen and this amount nitrogen, say, so why don't we just flip the percentages, all right? We'll make it much more oxygen than nitrogen, but we'll keep the exact amounts, but just flip them. The entire world would suffocate in a minute. So the recipe for air, 
the exact balance of elements in our air is exceedingly exact. Then let's go into our bodies, DNA. DNA ultra, ultra precise. And now we're getting into really small, small places right now. That if you throw in an extra Y chromosome or an extra Z, you know, X chromosome or whatever it is, you're, 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 you're talking about real mutations in a person, right? So exceedingly exact, exceedingly exact. And when you talk about DNA, you know, it's like, but anyway, and then when you get to the subatomic field, you know that if you change anything, you, you create an, a completely different element. You add one more electron or take away one proton, whatever it is, it, it's a completely different thing then. And now we're talking about, you know, be, you know beyond, microscopic, beyond microscopic, you know, subatomic level. So when you see from the planets down to air, down to DNA, right, down to atoms, you see how exact the world actually is. So then if that's the case, and that's science, we're not talking religion right now, we're talking science. If, if that's what we exist amidst, then what is all this idea of, oh, that's so random, that's so random? You know, where does that come from? So, so I was thinking about this, and it's like, because people are mysterious. People are mysterious, okay? So, meaning to say, you look at someone else and you say, why did you do that? Or why didn't you do that? Or why did you say that? Or why didn't you say that? And people can't figure people out. And life, of course, is really surprising. You know, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Because God has constructed the universe deliberately in a way that we don't know what's going to happen next. That's on purpose. You know, I, sometimes I share with you one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, and I, I didn't see it, but I, I just saw the plot, but I love this plot, where they encounter aliens, and the aliens say, the aliens exist outside of time. And the aliens are thoroughly intrigued by the human condition, and they talk to these, the Enterprise, you know, the Star Trek cast, and they say to them, well, what's it like not to know what's going to happen next? You know, they're so thoroughly intrigued by that. Now, of course, that's our lives, but you know what I mean? Just to think of it, you know, from their perspective is amazing. But because we don't know what's going to happen next, which, again, was God deliberately constructed the world that way for us, um, so that we can turn to him and we can rely on him and everything like this. Um, but anyway, and because we don't understand each other, that creates in a perception in our mind of randomness. And then we take that, that, that idea of randomness and we project it onto the universe. And we say, everything is random. But wait a second, as we just went through at length, everything absolutely is not random. Everything is very, very precise. And so, so, so there is, I think, an, an overview of reality, if you will. Now, this idea, when you, when you realize that, that, that the universe itself exists as an objective model, meaning to say, this is what it is. You know, um, in other words, when Einstein said, Space is curved. He wasn't coming up with a great idea that everyone loved, and it's like, okay, did everyone agree? Okay, because this is exciting. Does everyone agree right now that space is curved? Let's go with that. No, that's not what it is. He didn't come up with a good creative idea for a new story to tell. He observed what was there. Do you understand? In other words, he saw what was there. And I saw in connection with this that a, a definition of genius that, that, that genius is the ability to see things as they actually are. That's a very, very interesting idea for genius. Because usually people think of, oh, he just invented it in his head. But the idea to actually see what is already there, that's the idea that the universe around us is fixed and exact. And it's waiting to be discovered. All right? So now, what do we say? We say that the Torah is the fabric of the universe. That that's what the Torah is. Because remember, our religion says 
that the Torah existed before the world was created and that God made the world out of the, out of the Hebrew letters, meaning out of the Torah itself. Okay? So, again, that's a, it's a bit of a far-out idea, but, but the, what, what that means is that God had an intention for the world before he created the world. And that that design for the world, his will for the world, God took his will for the world and out of his will for the world made the world. And so the world is made out of his design for the world itself. So, so, so now let's... I'm going to explain this further, so, so hopefully you're, you're following me, but, but I want to now just incorporate some of, this, some of these um, math ideas, okay? So again, I'm drawing from this, this book right now um, by Mario Livio called The Golden Ratio, and uh, it's talking about Fibonacci numbers and, 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 and all sorts of interesting things. And so now I'm going to just tell you something that he's saying. It's on page uh, 240 here. Um, and you're going to hear how, I hope, how similar what I just told you from a Torah perspective, right? How, how, how similar this is going to sound. Now we're just approaching this from a math perspective, okay? So, so, so he's asks, he asks a very fascinating question, which is, why does math work so well? <laughs> like, how can, how can it be? You know, and and so, so, so he uses for one example Newton's, um, you know, uh, computation of gravitational forces. And Newton just, by the way, uh, calculated it a few decimal points in. But his it, it, his um, his assessment, he nailed it. What he said turned out to be true like a hundred more digits later. In other words, it was amazingly precise, but we didn't even have any clue until, you know, uh, mathematics became more advanced of just how thoroughly he absolutely nailed it hundreds and hundreds of years ago, right? So the question is the following. What did Newton accomplish? What What did he do exactly? In other words, did he just come up with how gravity works, the mathematics of gravity in his brain, and then it just turned out to be true? Or was it already implanted in the universe, all of these dynamics already implanted in the universe, and he was able to divine them? He was able to arrive at that which was already there. Okay, so this is called, the author calls this the platonic view of the universe. Okay, so the platonic, this is named after the great philosopher Plato. Okay, so the platonic view suggests that there is this objective reality which is already there. It's already sitting there and it's waiting to be discovered by, by say, mathematicians. When mathematicians come up with these new theories, right, and they turn out to be provable, what they've done is not invent something, but they've discovered that which is already there. You know, I, like, when I remember when I was a little kid, you know, children speak very imprecisely. And, and I remember, um, you know, like some kids saying that, like, Columbus invented America. <laughs> and it's like, no, he didn't invent America. America was already there. He discovered America. So, so these mathematical breakthroughs, like, like Newton and gravity, like Einstein and the curved shape of the universe, these are discoveries as opposed to inventions. Okay? So again, the reason why this resonates with me so much on a Torah level is because we're saying that all of these laws of the universe, in terms of ethical laws and how we are supposed to conduct our lives, they're already there in the universe because God literally made the universe out of them because it was his will for the world that he created the world out of, okay? And so all of these things, 
all these mitzvot are actually part of the fabric of the universe itself. So now with this in mind, let's, let's, let's use this to understand something, I think, very basic. How is it that societies all over the world who didn't encounter Jewish people, okay, all knew on their own, don't murder, right? For the most part, I'm sure there's some weird exotic cultures that said, yes, murder. But for the most part, we know that, that the world was independently, they arrived at this idea, don't murder, don't steal, things like this. Okay, they didn't arrive at all of the things, but they, they arrived at some very crucial things on their own. How, how is that? And I think that it makes perfect sense because these things are implanted in the world itself. They didn't invent them. They discovered them. They're already part of the universe. Okay? Now, the breakthrough of the Torah, what Moshe Rabbeinu did, what the Jewish people's role in, 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 in human civilization is, is that there are levels of precision of the fabric of the universe that are not obvious. They, they can't be intuited. Things like shotnets, not wearing a garment with wool and linen together. You'll never come up with that on your own, just by looking at the sky or something like this. There are precise levels to the universe that had to be revealed and were revealed, and that's, these are the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. And this is what the Jewish people are giving to the world. Now, the, the world is not obligated to keep all but seven of them, but those seven fundamentals, right, are, are part of all of our legacies. In other words, every single person in the world, Jewish or not, has a share in the Torah, which makes perfect sense. How could it be otherwise? We're all God's children. And if the world was made out of the Torah and we all live in the world, that means that we all have to have, every single person, a connection, a very deep, important connection to the Torah itself. Okay, so you say, well, there's 7 versus 613. Well, anyone who wants to take on this extra level of responsibility and leadership or whatever it is, is welcome to, right? But those 7 are a real 7. That's a, that's a very big share. And we also understand the Jewish tradition says that all righteous of all religions have a share in the world to come. You know, there's a exclusivity clause in many religions where if it's like, eh, if you don't go by our thing, you burn in hell forever. Which, it's not true. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, it's... And, and also, it just it doesn't make sense. How could it be that the righteous of the world don't have a share in, in the next world? How could it be? And in fact, they, they do have a share. Everyone has a share. So So... Everyone has this connection to the Torah that the world is made out of. But again, what I'm trying to say is, is that there's an objective reality to the world. But I want to go further. Because the author brings um, something, I think, really fascinating. Um, because, so you say, you say, if there is this objective reality to the world, right? <clears throat> meaning to say there's this concrete reality that exists around us and just waiting to be discovered. Therefore, it's just a matter of time till we know God 100%. Why not assume that as a, as a, as a logical kind of uh, consequence? You know, in other words, if there's a house and the house has certain boundaries around it, then at a certain point, eventually you're going to walk around the house, you're going to see the entire house. Okay. So he quotes um, an Austrian logician named Kurt Godel, who lived from 1906 to 1978. I'm still uh, reading from page 240 here. And who's also um, uh, believes in this platonic view of the world, meaning to say that there's a concrete objective structure that exists around us. Okay. And he, he, he has something that he says, um, maybe, how does he, 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 he refers to it in, um, anyway, he calls it the incompleteness theorem. Now this is a really interesting idea, okay? And he says that this is one of the most 
fabulous logical things. Here, oh, here, I found this sentence. He says, these theorems, probably the most celebrated results in the whole of logic. All right? So now you're going to hear a summary of what many people feel are the most celebrated results in the whole of logic. Listen to this, something very surprising, and you're going to hear very Toradic. Okay? And this is called, these are the incompleteness theorems. All right? Now, very interesting idea. What he says is, is that no theory, like numbers theory or whatever it is, no, no theory, and again, we're not talking religion right now, we're talking math, okay? No theory can prove itself, okay? Meaning to say, in order to prove whether this theory is actually accurate or not, you have to come up with a grander set, a grander field to show that this theory still works in this grander, larger field, right? But then what happens? Now you have to show in this, but how do we know in this larger field that it works? So you have to come up with an even grander field to show that it works. But then how do you, how do you know that it works in there? So then you have to come up with an even grander view to show that it works in there. So, so, so as a result, and listen to this nugget. So this comes from um, Douglas Hofstadter, who's writing about this, right, in this book, Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. Listen to this sentence. Provability is a weaker notion than truth. I'll read that again. Provability is a weaker notion than truth. I'll explain what that means. So in other words, in other words, the idea is that you, every time you say, well, we say, like, let's, let's just give a, a, a children's example right now. Um, so, um, what's, what's your name? Sam. How do I know? Because here's my ID. How do I know that's your ID? Well, because the government issued it. How do I know that the government issued it? <laughs> yeah, I can take you to the place that where, where it was made. How do I know that they really made it? Well, he, he, here are the records of, of the materials that they ordered. Well, how do I know that those places really exist? I'll take you to those places. On and on and on and on and on and on and on. So in other words, each time you actually prove something and you show something to be true, there's another question that can be asked on it. Ad infinitum. This is what Kurt Godel showed. That, that even within the language of mathematics, which we tend to think have the last word, if you say one plus one equals two, that's the end of the conversation. But what he's showing is that there's always a question that can be asked on top of it. And this is called the incompleteness theorems. Now, how does, why am I so excited about this? Because, because God created the universe in a way deliberately on purpose that he cannot be proven. Do you understand? Do you understand? Do, 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 do you hear the impact of that? God, it's not like, oh, you don't have enough faith, that's why you can't prove God. Or you're not smart enough, that's why you can't prove God. No, God can never be proven. And by the way, he can never be disproven. But that was part of the genius of creation, of God's mastery of creation, that he preserved free will at all points. And you see this in this, I think, a stunning example in terms of mathematics, this incompleteness theorem, right, showing that even math, which is what could be more tangible and concrete than math, that even in the realm of mathematical theory, you can never prove anything, and that you always have to go higher and richer and broader canvases to prove the previous assumption. So it just shows you how there's, there's no... There's no flaw in religion, so to speak, in that God created the world in such a way that he can't be proven, or said another way, that this was part of the deliberate fabric of the universe in order to give us free choice, in order to give us faith. We have many theological reasons why God did this, in order to give us merit, to give us the ability to choose to serve him, right? Because all of this was done in order to reward us. This was all done to, to bless us, basically. That we would have a role, an active, 
an active choice in our lives. Remember, the difference between human beings and angels is that for angels, God is openly revealed in front of them, but as a consequence, they have no free choice because they can't do anything wrong, because everything exists with total clarity. But the greatness of human beings is we exist in this universe where everything looks very random, but as we've seen, is actually very precise, and we get to choose to see the precision. We get to choose to see the hand of God. And that's massive. That's greater than the work of angels. That's massive. So again, just to review this point, I'm showing you that, that this, this Jewish idea that God created the world in a way even amidst an objective universe. Again, to, re to return back to the earlier example, that if you say, okay, well, if, if this world is, is an objective reality that exists around us, it's a concrete reality, and everything is waiting, you're not inventing things, it's just waiting to be discovered. Then over time, you should be able to discover everything. But, but we're showing on a mathematical level that that's not true. In other words, forget about the Torah view of the universe for a moment. Let's just talk about the Platonic view of the universe. You know, that even within that view, you can't prove everything because of the incompleteness theorems to show you that, that again, truth, to, to go back to that nugget, that provability is a weaker notion than truth. You see... Again, that, that deserves more attention, just because that's a, there's so much contained in that, that little phrase there. Provability is a much weaker notion than truth. You see, people in their limited thinking think that the highest form of truth is provability. <laughs> Do you understand? Like, like, you love me? Prove it. You know what 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 is what could be what could be more concrete than than the proof? So this is very counterintuitive. This is showing you that truth exists on such a lofty level that it's even greater than provability, and that it's not being held hostage to provability. That something can be true and not be able to be proven. And what's the greatness of what I'm sharing with you right now is that I'm saying that from a mathematical perspective. I'm not talking religion right now. I'm also talking religion because these things better collide. These, I mean, coalesce. They better go together. And in fact, they do. But, but this idea that truth is higher than proof and that something doesn't have to be able to be proven in order to be true... That's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Okay? And again, we're doing this from, from the mathematical level. Okay? Now let me just go to the other side of the spectrum for a moment. You know, and I, I heard, I'm not quoting Rav Shlomo right now, but, but I heard him say many things like this, you know? Which is, in terms of a relationship between, say, a man and a woman, if, if, one of them needs proof of the other's love, then there's something flawed about that relationship. There's something flawed about that relationship. Um, can you imagine if you couldn't say I love you without simultaneously presenting documentation? <laughs> you know? I mean, what kind of relationship is that? You know if you've ever been blessed enough to be in a love relationship with someone, and this is, can be a parent, child, brother, sister, best friends, whatever it is. You know that, that, there, that, that there is no contradiction between someone actually being, you know, a mess up and making mistakes and actually even hurting you and yet you know in your heart that they really do love you. By the way, that's not a, that's not a recommendation to stay in an abusive relationship. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you see that there is no contradiction 
that because you feel, because the love that you feel, and I'm talking about if it's a genuine love relationship between two people, right? The love that you feel transcends limitations because you know that it's, it's beyond. And so, so again, this idea that, 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 uh, that provability is a weaker notion than truth or that truth is, does not have to be held hostage to provability. And that furthermore, that God deliberately constructed the world in a way that he can't be proven. Because that's the essence of what it means to be a human being, to preserve our level of free choice. Remember, remember, the, the first letter of the Torah, the Bays of Breshis, right? In, 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 in Gamatri, in math, Bays is the number two. The letter Bays is the number two. That's the very first letter of the Torah. And remember, the Torah is the blueprint, as we've been saying, of all of reality. Right? God created the world out of the Torah. One of the, one of the levels of the letter Bays is free choice. Because, because I can do, remember, Bays is two. It's the number two. I can do this or I can do that. Meaning to say that, that, that the essence, the essence of the world is signified by the very first letter of the blueprint of existence. The base of Reishis, I can do this or I can do that. That's free choice. And everything is built on that. So that's, that's meaningful. Now, now I want to I go further. Which is, once we have this structure. Once we say, okay, I hear what you're saying. There is a structure. So what is that structure? All right? We, we, amidst, we live amidst a structure, and let's say the structure is the Torah. So what is that structure? What does that mean to me in the here and now, on a practical level? So there's a teaching, and it's, it's, it's such a simple teaching, but it's so far-reaching that I just don't think we can say it enough. And in the Torah, it says that God asked Adam to name the animals, okay? And on a mystical level, there's a very beautiful teaching that since God, as we were saying, made the world out of the letters, used the Hebrew letters to make the world, you see? And, and now, with what we've been saying up until now, we have a new way to understand that teaching, that God made the world out of the letters. And that's the following, that listen very carefully, that the Torah is the language of the universe. That's why he made the world out of the letters of the Torah, because the Torah is the language of the universe. That's, that's a very beautiful idea. And, and like, for instance, Rabbi Wolfson says that each week's Parsha, you know that whatever they say, that whatever is going on in the portion of the week in the Torah is going on in the world. So Rabbi Wolfson takes that a step further. He says that, that the fabric of creation, the fabric is weaved out of the letters of that week's portion of the week. Right? So, so again, this idea of the letters somehow being part of the, the energies of the letters and everything like that and the teachings being part of the, the fabric of, of existence and the, the world that we're living in. But this idea, again, that that God made the world out of the letters of the Torah, and that therefore the, the Torah is the language of the universe. Okay, so, so when you follow halacha, halacha are the commandments, that means the way, holech means to walk. It's translated as Jewish law, but that's a very didactic, very harsh translation. It means the, the flow and the harmony and the shape of things. So when one follows halacha, they're speaking the language of creation. That's what it is. That's why it's so important to keep halacha. And so, so to return back to this idea of Adam, and then I'm going to say something about halacha in a moment, to say something about Adam. So how did he name the different animals? So on a mystical level, it says that he looked at, he saw the energy, like for instance, fish is dog, right? That's dalid gimel. 
So he looked into fish and he saw the Dalit energy and the Gimel energy. And so he read what they were. So he says, oh, these are the combination of energies that God used to make this creation. So he didn't just come up with a word dog. He, he, he looked into their essence and said, and, said what, and, and, and read what they were, essentially. Okay. So at the end of this, and now this is not in the five books right now. This is from the Medrash. Then God says, after he names the animals, God says, and what's my name? Right? And Adam says, Adoni, which means my master. And again, this is so important, and I, I, I can't stop giving over this teaching, because if we say that there's an objective reality to the universe, that there's a concrete reality, it actually exists, and we've talked about that now on a mathematical level as well, then what is my role in this creation? Well, I, we just said that we're greater than the angels because we can use free choice and everything like that, and they can't. So we've got a higher level of merit and reward, and, and we're bringing down more light through the conscious choices that we make, hopefully good choices, right? But it also means that we're lower than God. <laughs> And that's the key point. In other words, God is our master. God is above us. And of course, God is our great love. And, and we always talk about the, the model of Song of Songs of Sher Shirim, which Rabbi Akiva in the Talmud says is the Holy of Holies, which is the construct of understanding our relationship with God is a great love affair. Right? But it's simultaneous, it's simultaneous paradigms all together. It's king and subject, parent and child, best friends, but also lovers at the same time. So, so in other words, but God is also Adoni, my master. And, and, and this is so important because so often we make ourselves the final authority and we say, I will decide what's true. I will invent the truth of the universe. But as we've just said at exhausting lengths, I hope, that it's not up to you to invent the truth of the universe. The truth of the universe already exists. It's there to be discovered. It's not there to be invented. Columbus did not invent America. He discovered America. It is not for us to invent all the rules of right and wrong and what I can do and what I can't do. They exist. They're part of the language of the universe that we exist in. And our job is to speak that language of the universe with each other. And when we're all fluent, that's the rectification of the world. When we're all speaking the same language, so to speak. So, again, that's not saying that what we have to be is robots and homogenized. That, that's not it at all. My, my favorite example of that is one of the thickest volumes of the, of the Talmud is Gomorrah Sukkah. You know how many laws there are on how to make a sukkah? There are a lot of laws, a lot of laws. Have you ever seen two sukkahs that look the same? Everybody's sukkah is different. So you can say, if there's so many laws, then every single one, it should be like a manufacturer, robot kind of like stamp, 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 stamp. And it's the opposite of that. This one is like, whoa, it's like I'm walking into a forest. This one is like I'm walking into a suburban rec room. You know, it's like there's so many different energies, you know? So it's not about homogenizing anything. You know, God created us on purpose to be individuals. And that's part of the beauty of the world, that we express our individuality. But at the same time, though, we have to, we have to be in harmony with each other. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of speaking the same language. Now, there's a very, I think, for me, compelling example of this. So, so in other words, what, the point I'm trying to make right now is that it's not for us, if God is our master, right? And there is an objective, concrete aspect to reality. It's not for us to invent what exists. It's for us to discover what exists. All right, so what happens when these two things collide? What happens when these two things collide? Because if someone has free choice, that means that there's, an emotional logic going on as well. 
So, you know, people go back and forth in their own minds. Well, this, I'm told, is true, but this feels right. So what do I do? This, they say this is right, but I kind of like this. All right? So let me give you an example of those two things coming together in halacha in, I think, an interesting and surprising way. So... So we read this every morning. It's part of the morning prayers. In this art scroll version, it's on page 38. So this is a teaching from Bar Kapara, who's talking about the incense mixtures that would be brought to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And what he says is that this incense mixture, if you added a little bit of fruit honey to it, the smell would be absolutely irresistible. All right, not like pretend, like irresistible. No, a little fruit honey, wow, like, like, you know, off the hook, like, like it would be irresistible. And then the Torah goes on to say, don't do it. (laughs) So, so it's not. Now let's just review that, okay? Because something very significant is being said over here. It doesn't say. Oh, you think if you add fruit honey to it, which you shouldn't do, by the way, that it's going to make it irresistible. But it's not going to make it irresistible. You just think it's going to be making it irresistible. That's not what it just said. Just to be very clear. It says, if you added fruit honey to it, it would make it irresistible. It actually would be on a physical, sensory, you know, pleasure level, irresistible. Don't do it. <laughs> so with that, that opens up big gateways in my brain because what that says is, is that you might be right. That might be more fun. That might be better. But there's a greater truth that you're dwelling in right now. And in terms of being in harmony with that greater truth, you don't want to take that side alley. Because it's going to be a detour off the path that you actually want to go to. It doesn't mean it won't be fun. Yes, that party it will be fun. It will be fun. But you know what? You've got to drive there on a Friday night and you know, you've got to use all sorts of money. And you know, Shabbos is completely out the window. And would you have a good time? It's not like, oh, you just think you're going to have a good time. No, you'll actually have a good time. You know what? Those drugs actually will give you pleasure. No, you're not making it up. They will give you pleasure. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Because you want to be in tune with the greater, broader reality, the greater direction that you want to be heading in. And so so you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. Meaning to say you can be right that that would have been a lot of fun and that that is a lot of fun and that is extraordinarily pleasurable. You can be right about that. But it's taking you off the greater path that you want to go to. So anyone who tells you that, no, that's not fun, you just think it's fun, no. You tell them, look, look, the the, the scent would be irresistible. (laughs) I'm not making it up. The Torah itself is saying that I'm right. Okay, so now... Now, let's, and of course, listen, all this is trial and error, meaning to say, all right, some days are better than others, you can't beat yourself up, especially if you want to try to get onto that larger path, and you have spent a lifetime going down these side paths and things like that. It's a transition. So anyone who wants to try to sort of like get on the, the main highway again, has to be very patient with themselves that, you know, it, it takes a while. It takes years, actually. Years and years, actually, to get it completely down. But so, so you know, a lot of people make a mistake. They, they, they hear things like this and they go, okay, I'm on board. And then they go, wow, this is much harder than I thought it was. You know, like, what's the matter with me? Or what's the matter with that? But there's nothing the matter with it. You just have to be very patient. Remember what Rabbi Israel Salanter says. The loudest noise in the universe is the sound of a habit being broken. All right? So, and that it's easier to learn all of Shas, the entire Talmud, right? Which is, it takes, you have to 
If you learn a page a day, it takes you seven years. That's how big the Talmud is. It's easier to learn the entire Talmud than it is to change one habit. All right? So, again, you have to be... You have to be very patient with yourself and you have to understand what you're up against. But the idea is just to stay in it. Now, I want to finish with a story that I just came across. And um, it's from this book that I can't recommend enough. It's called The, um, the Torah Treasury. Um, Art Scroll uh, uh, publishes it. It's an oversized book. Um, and it's the Tobias Heller edition. And I have to give really... A lot of gratitude and hakara satov to Rabbi Moshe Lieber, who uh, who anthologized this. And so, anyway, it's called the Torah Treasury, and and it, it it reminds me of this story that I heard about when Richard Nixon visited the Great Wall of China, and they asked him, "What do you think? What do you think?" And uh, <laughs> President Nixon said, "It certainly is a great wall." <laughs> so. About this book, I have to say, it certainly is a Torah treasury. <laughs> um, and, and he draws from like, um, anyway, try to get it if you can. So, but anyway, this story is, is, is contained in it, and it's on page 289. And, um, okay, so again, let's just set the story up, and just to review, and we're going to finish up with this. So what we've been saying, and, and we've been saying this on a, the, a level of sort of like a Talmud Torah of Torah study for, for many years now. But we've been approaching it from a, from a mathematical perspective and from, you know, drawing on uh, the Platonic view of the world and, and, and Kurt Godel from, from this, from, from, from mathematical perspective as, as, as well. To, just to show all these truths um, are consistent with, with Torah. And, and, and so if that's the case, then then if I exist amidst a certain structure and I'm traveling because the soul is traveling, right? That's, that's what we do. And, and the soul doesn't stop traveling for all of eternity. This is the amazing thing. And I saw a beautiful teaching from my son who's learning in Jerusalem now and uh, Moshe Chaim and uh, very grateful for him sending me this teaching. It's a very famous question. Um, which is, right now we're counting the days of the Omer. And, and we know that all, the whole point of counting the days of the Omer is because on the 50th day that we left Egypt, we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. So the whole point, and it says it right in the Torah, that the whole point is that we're counting to get to this 50th day. So it's, again, a very famous question. Why is it then that we don't count the number 50? We just count 1 through 49, but not the number 50. And if you say, well, wait a second, the whole... The whole point is to get to the number 50. Why are we counting number 50? So there are many, many answers to this. But, but I love this answer. And my, my son sent me this answer. So, Because the point is the process. The point is the journey getting there. That's the point. That's the point. And so, so remember, after 120 our soul leaves our body, and the soul lives on. So, and it lives on as us, by the way. That's a very important thing that the Torah is very strong on. We maintain our sense of individual identity even after we leave our body. It's not that the soul lives on in this abstract way and disappears into the oneness of God and all of this. No, we remain us just without a body. That's so, so in other words... We continue to live. And then, again, this is what I'm about to tell you is Judaism 101. This is not Kabbalah. This is not mysticism. This is Judaism, okay? That there will be a resurrection of the dead. It's called Techias Hanesim. The righteous will live again. The dead are going to live again. And, and, and by the way, there's so many beautiful examples and proofs of this. Um, you know, but one I just r ran across again recently, which I, I really love. It's in Gomorrah Sanhedrin in, in Parakhelik. It's on page uh, Sadi Aleph, I think, um, 91, if you want to see it. So it's talking about all sorts of proofs of, of, of the recitate, you know, revival of the dead, Techias Amesim. And one of the simple, like, you want to hear a simple logical thing that the rabbis say there? One of many examples, by the way, is that 
You say, how can it be the dead are going to live again? Like the rabbis are being challenged by uh, non-Jewish philosophers. They say, how can it be the, the dead are going to live again? How is that possible? So one of the rabbis says to him, listen, before you existed, you were absolutely nothing. You were nothingness. And then all of a sudden, this massive miracle, you became something. So once you're something, it's very easy to make you something again. <laughs> In other words, the big work was making something out of nothing. Once you're a something, you can become something again. That's like child's play compared to making something out of nothing. But once you're alive, you're already a something that was made out of nothing. So what if you're dead? God can make you a something again. <laughs> the main work has already been done. So interesting perspective. Another nice perspective is just uh, grass. You know, you plant grass and the seed disintegrates. That's like a body going into the earth and the body disintegrating. And then grass comes up. Something living comes up. We say, wait a second, that, it was dead, it disintegrated, it was nothing. And yet we see this phenomena of really resurrection of the dead constantly, trillions of times a day all over the world. Grass is sprouting everywhere, you know? So, again, that's another example they give. They give many examples. But, um, and we know with, even on a scientific level with cloning, you can just take a cell of something that's been dead for thousands or millions of years and bring it back to life now. So, I mean, it's really not that far out of concept. But, but the point that I'm trying to make is, is, that, is, that, is that that's the destiny of the world. This is what we say, and we say this is one of the core beliefs, one of the, you know, Rambam brings it as one of the 13 hardcore principles of Judaism, you know? So, so, anyway, the point is, is that after we leave our bodies, we continue to live on as us, and then we come back, and we continue to live again forever. So the actual idea of immortality in Judaism is, is a bedrock principle, okay? So, 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 in other words, the idea is, is that the journey never stops, so it's all about the journey. Again, we're not counting the number 50. We're counting 1 through 49 because really it's all about the journey. And the journey never stops. Okay? So now with this in mind, we'll go back to the story that I wanted to tell you from the Torah treasury. Okay? So, so that means that we really have to put a premium on heading in the right direction. Because if you're on a journey, you want to make sure that you're heading in the right direction. For sure, right? So this, this story um, uh, is about Rev. Elchanan Wasserman, who is one of the great Rosh Hashivas of the last hundred years. You know, like right up there with the Chovitz Chaim, he was really one of the greatest, okay? And um, he was visited by a childhood friend, and the childhood friend was a wealthy lawyer. And he sees Rabbi Wasserman is living in, essentially in poverty. And he says to him, you know, you are, you're so much smarter than I am. He says, I became like a, 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 a big lawyer. You could have been a super big lawyer and then you would have had like tons of money, right? And Rabbi Wasserman doesn't say anything back to him. Okay, then at the end of their time together, they go to um, the train station. Rabbi Wasserman is seeing his friend to the train, right? And there are two trains there heading in opposite directions, all right? Now, one of them is like super modern and very, very comfortable. The other is this old, old rickety train, right? But the old rickety train is going westward. And so he sees that his friend is getting into the old rickety train because that's the direction that his friend was heading in. So Rabbi Wasserman says, hey, wait a second. What are you doing? Wouldn't you rather get into the modern comfortable one? And, and his friend says to him, uh, he, says, well, he says, why, why aren't you doing that? Get into that one. And, and now I'm just going to read. The man stared at Rabbi Elchanan, uh, Rabbi Wasserman, because he says, because I'm going in the other direction. So Rabbi Wasserman says back to him, nonetheless, isn't it better to travel in a comfortable train? The lawyer was exasperated. Elchanan, Rabbi Wasserman, you're speaking nonsense. What good is a comfortable train if it's not taking me where I have to go? Softly, Rabbi Elchanan required, uh, replied, Rabbi Wasserman replied, listen to yourself. 
You know that when you want to arrive at a specific destination, the comfort of the vehicle doesn't determine whether you get on. The direction does. The main thing is to get where you have to be. You asked me why I didn't become a lawyer. Of course that career would have been more lucrative, but that's not my goal in life. What good is the comfort if I don't arrive where I'm headed? All right. Have a great week. <laughs> Yeah. I was wondering how rabbinical authority challenges the facts of reality in that, you know, Lobashamayi, we're changing, you know, the flow of rivers or whatever and interacting with the holy halakha right. fabric of the universe. Right. And so it's degrees. Mind, yeah, it's 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 degrees. It's degrees. In other words street. I'm sorry? It's a two way street. There is interaction in you're right. There is interaction, but that's the subheading. That's the subheading. You know what I mean? It's like we're not making uh, we're, we're not making uh, 